2: I appreciate you joining me today. I have some great sponsors I'd like to introduce you to. You can actually get acquainted with them on the show notes page of my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. That's right, show notes. They're for your uh, reading enjoyment, for you to further pursue knowledge on some of the topics brought up, and for uh, less motivated talk hosts to uh, use in place of their own show prep. It's a burden that I'm repaying for all those years that I used to borrow Neil Bortz's show notes as my own <laughs> to help me get some thought starters going. Nonetheless, I'm uh, I'm glad you're here today. We've got a lot of great stuff to talk about. Our sponsors include modicellocollege.org, also the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and lifesavingfood.com. Just having this conversation with a friend yesterday about food storage, and one of the questions he asked, and I think this is a fair question, yeah, but does this food taste okay? I mean, some of that stuff out there is nasty. And if you've ever had, like, the, the meals ready to eat... Now, those of you who served in the military, you, you know that's three lies for the price of one. But there, there are some dishes that are okay, There's some that are actually not bad, and there's some that are just kind of like dog food. But I, wanted, I want you to understand that the food sold through lifesavingfood.com, this is Ready Wise Food, has a 25-year shelf life, it has good variety, it is good quality... Meaning it's it's tasty, okay. This is not gourmet stuff. This isn't like you're going to get at some French restaurant, but it's made to last to be there when you need it. And and here's the best part: you just click on the link, go to their website, they'll knock ten percent off your purchase with the coupon code HYDE, H Y D E. Just put that in at checkout, and you'll save ten percent. Where to begin today? I do. I'm going to warn you right up front. I've got some I've got some pretty uh, hard hitting stuff here concerning the. Uh, vaccines, concerning vaccine passports, um, the the principle that is at, this, at the root of many people's hesitancy toward getting vaccinated. And that's a principle called informed consent. We'll talk a little bit about how that's being transformed into coercion of the uninformed. But I want to start with something that has nothing to do with COVID or vaccines or standing for your freedom or anything like that. It's more of an appreciation of of all the little decisions, all the little voluntary acts of cooperation that take place on a daily basis and and keep us happily fed, clothed, and sheltered. This is an article from Art Carden from the American Institute for Economic Research. And if you're familiar with Leonard E. Reed's brilliant essay, I Pencil, in which he describes the division of labor and all the different ways that the free market works to bring the people and the resources together to create the simple number two pencil. You can appreciate this. This one's called I Meal, the symphonies of cooperation on Made in a Day. Now, he's talking about a series on Disney called Made in a Day. I haven't watched this yet, but after reading this, I'm kind of intrigued. I think maybe I will. Art Carden says, recently my family watched a series on Disney Plus called Made in a Day, and it's a steady diet of wonders with episodes explaining Tesla automobiles, rockets, fire trucks, John Deere tractors, Jeep Wranglers, uh, fire trucks. He mentioned that one before. <laughs> Gibson guitars, Tabasco sauce, Jack Daniels, New Balance speakers, and Gate Gourmet airplane meals. Every product is a mundane miracle of knowledge, cooperation, And how civilization advances, according to Alfred North Whitehead, by extending the number of important operations which we can perform without thinking of them. And Art Carden points out there are regular rehearsals of the lessons that Leonard E. Reed teaches in his essay, I Pencil. there's There's a link to this actually in the article. Now he says, I don't like the show's title because nothing is made in a day. Something might be assembled in a day or shipped in a day, but by this point, it already embodies numerous processes and vast amounts of knowledge no single person knows. For instance, both Gibson and Jack Daniels use a lot of wood for guitars, whiskey barrels, and charcoal. And they don't use just any wood either. They use particular kinds of wood because they make the kinds of guitars and whiskey barrels worthy of the names Gibson and Jack Daniels. He says, these products emerged from years and years of trial and error. And people might not see why this brand succeeded, where that brand failed, or in precise detail, why Jack Daniels has such broad appeal, while other whiskeys don't. Fortunately, in a commercial society, whiskey consumers owe no one else an explanation beyond, at that price, I'm willing to buy it. Now, he says, the Gate Gourmet episode was especially fascinating because it focused on the Gate Gourmet kitchen at LAX and explain just a few things that make preparing airplane meals a unique challenge. Gate Gourmet serves some 530,000 meals a day. That's mind-blowing. 40,000 or so out of LAX alone, and the importance of risk management and timing in food service make this a compelling case. For example, they talked about loading a plane from LA to Sydney with 960 meals for 320 passengers. That's two meals and a snack. If their success rate is a mere 99.9%, that would mean at least one sick passenger per LAX flight to Sydney. Now, he says the program also made me think about how inaccurate it is to say something is made in America or made locally. For John Deere, some 70% of the materials come from outside Waterloo, Iowa. The parts for Jeep Wranglers made in Toledo, Ohio, come from around the world. However, John Deere owns a foundry that makes high-strength iron from recycled scrap and perhaps does the iron production in-house for quality control reasons or tax reasons, as iron and steel are regulated, protected industries. Now, he says, as an economist looking from the outside, this puzzles him. Why not buy the iron from a supplier? But he says, for now, I content myself with the knowledge that they have their reasons and are in a better position to evaluate those reasons than I am. He says, every program emphasizes quality. Companies aren't just making noise about it either, because what looks successful in a one-shot game can be suicidal when customers have options. Retail innovator Saul Price, the inventor of the Modern Warehouse Club, once told a story about a farmer that started cutting corners by mixing a little bit of cheap straw into its horse's hay. Now, it didn't seem to make much of a difference at first, so he kept trying to stretch the hay by adding more and more straw. Eventually, the horse died, and the farmer got upset because, after all, he had just taught the horse to eat nothing but straw. So the show emphasizes just-in-time production processes and inventory management. John Deere tractors receive multiple parts deliveries every day. The Gate Gourmet episode highlighted, highlighted the premium they put on freshness. And at the same time, Gate Gourmet had an enormous warehouse filled with carts, ovens, flatware, cups, plates, bowls, and all sorts of other things ready to go, which suggests profitable opportunities for people who can help them improve their inventory management. In fact, Art Carton says, I was especially interested in the discussion of how airplane meals have changed. When commercial air travel started, that was a luxury reserved for the wealthy. Since the Civil Aeronautics Board set minimum prices, airlines competed by providing better in-flight amenities. Moreover, they strategically protected their route monopolies by flying lots of planes below capacity. Then when a competitor applied for the right to a particular route the incumbent could point at their half-full planes and say, well, the route doesn't need another airline. Now, This broke down with the Airline Deregulation Act in 1978. Airlines cut back on competition through frills and started competing by lowering fares rather than offering more and better frills. As people have gotten richer, they've demanded better and higher quality food is making a comeback. The production process for an airplane meal is simply spellbinding if you're a certain kind of person. But he says, from where we sit, it looks flawless. Now, I'm sure that's definitely not the case on the ground, but it's flawless enough that we eat snacks and food on planes without worrying too much about getting sick. Now, from the sidelines, it might seem silly to think that having this particular corn for Jack Daniel's whiskey or this particular vinegar for Tabasco sauce makes that much of a difference. But for those of us on the sidelines, he says, we're not the ones with our reputations and livelihoods riding on those decisions. When companies have been found out for compromising on quality, consumers have punished them. And he says, I'm mature enough to care about quality now, I think, and I have an income high enough to pay for it. Therefore, there are some places where I don't buy meat or produce because I've had bad experiences with them in the past. He says, I like shows like Made in a Day for several reasons. First, they explore the wondrous in the seemingly mundane. Tractor manufacturing may not stir the blood or fire the imagination like glory on the battlefield, glory on the football field, or intense scientific investigation, but it deserves a place alongside them. Second, he says they renew my appreciation for decentralized, spontaneous orders emerging out of a commercial system with no one in charge. Airplane meals, tractors, guitars, and whiskey are the products of human design, but they're the products of human design that are brought parts of a broader symphony of order and cooperation. No one single mind is composing. That's a pretty cool lesson in and of itself. Yes, there is a link in the show notes at thebryanhideshow.com.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
2: Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, among the things you'll find at thebrianhydeshow.com is a special page called Resources for Wrong Thinkers. That's for you and me. And this is not the, the comprehensive. These are the only sources which I will ever believe. But if, if it's a source that's listed in resources for wrong thinkers, I can promise you these are sources that I've been accessing for, in some cases, you know, 20, 25 years. So I, I've given myself a good chance to vet them. Uh, they, they provide good, thought-provoking commentary or news reporting, and uh, t- typically without the, the partisan spin or partisan baggage, and there's a lot of them. They're there for your edification, lots of news aggregator sites that can help you have a better feel for what's happening in the world. Again, it's up to you to vet the information, to prove it for yourself, but I've tried to pull these together. A lot of them you can subscribe to. You can get daily emails, which will help you. See, I'm, I'm actually encouraging you to become so well-informed that you outgrow this show and can basically go chart your own course and inform the people around you. But I found, I found a source that I'm considering adding to, my Resources for Wrong Thinkers. And it's a, a site that I only became aware of just a, a few months ago. It's off-guardian.org, off-guardian.org. And I've, I've read, I don't know, maybe a dozen articles from their various writers. There's a consistency to their writing and their thinking. And I don't mean that they all think the same thing. When I say there's a consistency, I mean there's a quality that comes from it. They have insight. They're well-sourced. They're well-thought-out. And, and they're also very nonpartisan. To me, that's a plus. I don't want to just, you know get more partisan, rah, 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 red state, blue state, you know, sis, boom, ba. There's, there's a recent article here from a writer by the name of T.E. Cruz. It's all for your own good. And I thought this one was worth sharing because this, this so accurately describes, in, in many cases, my own feelings on, on why I'm very skeptical of the official narrative. T.E. Cruz says, one of the most annoying aspects of the current measures supposedly created against the pandemic that we've been subjected to for almost two years now is the insistence that everything is done for our own good, as if governments and big companies were strict but caring parents and we were just unruly or disobedient children who don't really know what they need. It does kind of feel that way, doesn't it? And it brings to mind a C.S. Lewis warning about that most oppressive of tyrannies, which is a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims. T.E. Cruz says, now, I can't tell for sure if the vaccines, the lockdowns, the travel restrictions and the masks work or not. He says, my feeling is that they don't or at least not in the way we're being told, but that's not the issue the question is why we're being treated like stupid children who simply cannot choose but have to take a jab and then get green passes to travel or work or enter any establishment okay i'm going to pause right here that's a very good description you know some people will say well, you're you're an anti-vaxer man you you just anti everything it's no i'm definitely You know, I I definitely have some strong feelings about the vaccines, the lockdowns, travel restrictions, and masks. But it goes back to the idea that I don't really know all the answers. I just have this sense that they don't work in the way that we're being told. There's something more going on here than this is for your own protection. And I think at the root of that is the idea that the state is somehow a hybrid God slash parent that needs to tell us what to do. T.E. Cruz says apparently governments and big corporations worldwide are worried about our health. But he asks, are they really? Like monomaniacs, they seem to be worried exclusively about COVID. Not about the incredible amounts of mental health issues or the alarming increase of teenage suicides during the various lockdowns. Not about people like my elderly neighbors who couldn't see their family who live in another country for over two years and are suffering with solitude. Not for the people who, afraid of contracting COVID, didn't go to the hospital to treat other conditions and died. Not for the people who died or got sick because of side effects of the vaccines. No, no, no. It's just COVID. And even that doesn't seem to be their main worry. As long as they get their vaccine passports and their tracking apps and their cashless society, he says they don't really care if you get the disease or not. And then he asks, when did this wave of fake concern start? Okay, governments were probably already and always in the business of being annoying busybodies. I'm from the government and I'm here to help. That was a scary sentence since who knows how long. But companies for decades were mostly concerned with selling their product, not with lecturing us. However, at the peak of the BLM riots, T.E. Cruz says, I received dozens of emails from big companies assuring me that to them, black lives mattered. In Pride Month, those same companies assured me that they were fighting for transgender rights to use whichever bathroom they wanted. He says, I never asked nor cared what's their position on those issues, just that they make a good product that I can use. Now the same companies send me emails about masks and vaccination and passes because, see, they're worried about my health. Right. Unfortunately, he says it's not just governments and big companies. Almost every institution in the culture and the arts is kowtowing either to government decrees or to keep being funded. He goes, I really don't know. But it's it's to to kowtow to this literal new world order. And the example he gives is the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, which now has very strict regulations for entry. They tell us they want to create an environment in which we may all confidently discover what it means to be together. Again, I don't know if I've read anything more Orwellian that wasn't written by George Orwell. I mean, that's really what the heck does that mean? T.E. Cruz says, and so in the name of togetherness, they're banning all people who are not vaccinated, including all children under 12 years of age who cannot, alas, be legally vaccinated yet. Not even people with a negative covid test will be allowed entry to the concerts. Only the vaxxed ones and their, with their proper certificates. Still, even they will have to endure masks for the whole duration of the spectacle. It's not clear if the musicians will also have to wear masks. He says, I suppose at least the flute players will be exempted. And yet, despite all those draconian rules, who really seem to take all of the fun out of the process, and in this case, it might really be better to just stay home and watch a video streaming online, you also see this in the fine print of the policy. These protocols do not offer absolute protection against contracting COVID-19, and spectators must voluntarily assume all risks related to exposure to COVID-19. Oh, (laughs) so it's all for my safety, but still, if you get it, you know, it's not our fault. Now, he says, note also that those showing any possible symptoms might not be allowed entry, vaccine or not. I wonder if anyone who coughs during one of the breaks will be forcefully ejected. T.E. Cruz says this is just one example among the many ludicrous and merciless new normals that we're being subject to in the name of our health. But he says, remember, it's all for your own good. Yeah, I kind of resent that, too. And this is, you know, people, I, I see memes going back and forth. The meme wars are a real thing online. And some of them are like, well, when you know as much of a, as a doctor, then you would be qualified to make these kinds of decisions. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not being arrogant when I say this, but I don't care how much schooling a doctor has, has had. Ultimately, the decision for what is right for me and my health or my kids' health, that comes down to me. Doc can't know what uh, what my conscience tells me. Doc can't know what my priorities are. And as long as I have that personal autonomy, by gar, I'm going to be exercising it. I suggest maybe you uh, draw a similar line in the sand in your mind and stick to it. Despite those uh, assurances, it's all for your own good. I think tyrants have always told their people that. Just remember, they're not your parent. And big companies... You're not my parent either.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
2: Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I really appreciate your feedback. And if you will visit my show notes at thebrianhide.show.com, you will find that there's a handy dandy uh, message feature that you can send me a message. Give me feedback. Good or bad, it doesn't matter. I'm I'm interested in whatever you, you have to say. You can also leave a voicemail if that's what you want to do. So there's there's the option. It's right there. I want to take a moment here and thank the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in Saint George for being one of the sponsors of the show. Um, you know, this is the craziest real estate market most people have seen in their lifetime. It's it's amazing. I mean, on the one hand, people are like, "Wow, look at the value of my or the value of my home." On the other hand, you know, when you find one, holy cow, the competition is fierce. You've got to have your financing in order right then to pull the trigger. And Heather is the one you want on your side to make that happen when time is of the essence. Now, Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. You can call Heather at 435-703-4522. Her office is at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. So let's take a little bit of a trip away uh, away from the authoritarianism, Let's talk about plastics, right? Remember Dustin Hoffman, the graduate? One word, plastics. This is advice to a young college graduate, you know, getting ready to go out there and take on the world. I don't know if you have noticed, but there has been an interesting plastic shortage. And I don't know if you're seeing this. uh, Some places, it it was very prominent a couple of weeks ago. Very hard to find bottled water. Did you pick up on that? And I know there were concerns, oh, man, they're limiting people to only two cases of bottled water. The problem isn't that, uh, you know, there's nobody to bottle water. It's all being snapped up. It's being kept by FEMA. Nothing like that. It's that uh, getting plastic components is getting tougher. And apparently a lot of the plastic bottles that uh, people, uh, that companies use for bottled water come from China. So there may be some aspects of a trade war that's that's playing into this as well. And now Hurricane Ida has come roaring into our consciousness earlier this week. And Peter Earle from the American Institute for Economic Research says, Hurricane Ida is threatening global plastic markets. He says, of the many industries which have been strained to the limit of their capacity over the last 18 months, few have struggled as mightily and quietly as the resins and plastic sector. In part, the low-profile nature of their adversity has mostly to do with the obscure nature of what's otherwise a ubiquitous business. He says the COVID pandemic struck producers of commodity polymers, that's relatively weak, eat cheap-to-manufacture disposable plastics, hard from the very beginning. And among the first products to see a huge upsurge in demand were rubber gloves, face masks, and the plastic material used in packaging those and numerous other medical supplies. In May of 2020, the launch of the Trump administration's Operation Warp Speed added mightily to that strain. By jump-starting a massive parallel drug development program, calling for hundreds of millions of vaccine doses, the need for plastic liners and wrapping was uh, understandably immense. Also, the need for masks and gears during the associated clinical trials was similar de- similarly demanding. But Peter C. Earl says none of that includes... The incredible demand driven by millions upon millions of people confined to their homes worldwide and the commensurate explosion in retail consumption. You just don't think about this kind of stuff, but he says Amazon, Walmart, other retailers filled record numbers of orders, each of which required adhesive tape, bubble wrap and clear packaging seal. So the industry shifted into overdrive to meet the exploding demand. In late March, workers at polypropylene plants in West Virginia and Pennsylvania volunteered to live at their workplace for 28 days in order to continue working and not violate lockdown and quarantine rules. Shortly thereafter, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security designated workers at chemical manufacturers as essential, but not before the effects of some 60,000 being sent home under the original pandemic restrictions had severely reduced output. So, from the perspective that the need for plastic containing medical and healthcare equipment was critical, the cancellation of other orders for automobiles, construction, and so on was, in a sense, fortuitous. Now, from here, he goes into the producer price index of plastics, uh, plastic resins, and materials. He actually has some great charts that can show you what happened. But he says producers of the raw materials of plastics, including monoethylene, polyethylene, polypropylene and others, struggled to stay ahead of rapidly accelerating consumption. But by the end of 2020, market forces were responding. An example of three end of 2020 letters sent by plastic and resin producers to wholesalers and retailers, warning of imminent price increases. That's linked in the article. Now, Peter Earl says, like every other shortage of late, the abrupt Colossal increase in demand was a fundamental but not singular factor in the rising prices and plummeting availability of plastic products. Early in 2021, the first of several subsequent impediments appeared. The Texas power crisis, you remember this, between February 10th and 20th of 2021, saw nearly 5 million homes and businesses lose power. Plastic production was impacted directly and with particular severity. And this is because the freeze had a devastating impact on the plastics industry, shutting down major production facilities for polyethylene and polypropylene and decimating the power grid. That winter storm also halted production in the world's largest petrochemical complex, causing a sudden shortage in almost 100 essential chemicals and derivatives used in much of Texas industry's functions. The freeze alone caused an estimated 12% reduction in U.S. polyethylene production. With Exxon Mobil Corp, Royal Dutch Shell, uh, Westlake Chemical Corp, and Dow Chemical Company struggling to maintain Gulf Coast operations. And he shows you the charts to, to demonstrate what happened. He says, at least it could be ventured. Resins and plastics had been shipped uninterrupted up until the ice storms swept through the southern United States. But he says that view too would be shortly undermined just a month after the southern deep freeze. 7,000 miles east of Houston, Texas. Do you remember this? A skyscraper-sized container ship became wedged across Egypt's Suez Canal and blocked all traffic in the vital waterway, disrupting a global shipping system already strained by the coronavirus pandemic. The MS Ever Given, a Panama-flagged ship that carries cargo between Asia and Europe, ran aground in the narrow man-made canal dividing continental Africa from the Sinai Peninsula. Images showed the ship's bow touching the eastern wall while its stern looked lodged against the western wall. An extraordinary event that experts said they'd never heard of happening before in the canal's 150-year industry. So as the Harvard Business Review put it, the blocking of the Suez Canal by a container ship contributed to the supply disruption of another critical category of materials, plastics, Constraints on the supplies of their raw materials, especially polyethylene, polypropylene, and monoethylene, led to factory shutdowns, sharp price increases, and production delays across a range of industries. Now, the delay of over 400 ships for nearly a week accounts in no small part for the subsequent surge in the Houston price index. And we're talking about things like plastic cups and takeout containers, drinking straws, disposable utensils and bags. These are among the items rapidly disappearing from establishments around the globe. Isn't this something? Now, in the coming weeks, he says... There are some other things to watch out for. In fact, at this point, he says, attention is being directed back toward the Gulf Coast and Hurricane Ida. Directly in the path of this storm were a handful of oil and gas facilities and a number of significant petrochemical plants. If the storm causes considerable damage, and we know already that it has, already record-level resin and plastic prices may be topped, sending additional disruptive ripples through the long global manufacturing processes life, limb, and property should be the first priority once those are safeguarded. A national discussion linking pandemic-related policies with a large and growing cascade of adverse outcomes should be a topic of some urgency. Now, for some people, this is going to sound like, okay, it's uh, so much economic measurement, gobbledygook, blah, blah, blah. I get that. There's there's a lot of numbers that uh, and, and indices that uh, have to be taken into consideration here, but the bottom line is, we seldom think about how interconnected the supply system is. This applies us with the things that we just take for granted on a daily basis. You know, sandwich bags. You know, you're packing your lunch as you're headed out the door for work. Well, you know, did you stop and think about, uh, you know, what's, what's going on with your sandwich bags? Why are they tough to find? Why are they so expensive? Well, this article from Peter C. Earle from the American Institute for Economic Research sheds a bit of light on this. And this doesn't mean you need to drop everything you're doing and get an advanced degree in economics. It just means you need to be aware and pay attention because sometimes the seemingly little disconnected things add up to uh, affect a lot more than we originally thought. That reminds me, I kind of want to go stock up on straws, (laughs) plastic utensils and things like this. No, it's not because I'm worried about a plastic shortage. I I just don't like washing dishes.
0: This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian
2: Hyde Show, and we are back. Thank you so much for being uh, a listener. I don't take it for granted that, oh, yeah, everybody's listening. Everybody agrees. Everybody wants a piece of this show. In fact, I'll freely admit, the message of uh, personal liberty, the message of freedom of conscience, of private property rights, of, uh, of the need for um, personal liberties at every turn, free market principles, that's not a message that everybody wants. Or is is looking for. And uh, frankly, there are some people who, you know, they understand these things, or at least they appreciate these things, but it's still not a priority for them. And I'm not saying that they're bad because it's not. I'm just saying that that, uh, for those who are looking for some reassurance that, yes, the things that uh, you have been taught matter most, they still matter. Even if society seems to be traipsing off into the weeds and going in another direction. That's just, that's life. The good news is you don't need a majority of people in order to uphold things that are good and and right. You just need people who understand what their rights are and are willing to stand for them. Take, for example, when you hear about hesitation towards taking the COVID vaccine, typically what are the choices we're given to, to understand why someone might not take the vaccine? You know, if you're hearing this from most mainstream sources, the The choices of why a person wouldn't be vaccinated come down to, well, they're either selfish, stupid, or they've been misled by some misinformation or some conspiracy theory. See, that's a lot easier than actually addressing the actual concerns that a person might have. Maybe they've heard stories of adverse vaccine reactions. I understand these things can be anecdotal in the in the grand scheme of how many millions and hundreds of millions of doses have been done. Yeah, maybe it's, it's a statistically very small amount, but it doesn't change the fact that it's real. It doesn't change the fact that it does happen. To me, the principle that underlies the hesitation that so many people feel toward taking the COVID vaccine is a principle based in personal autonomy. It's something called informed consent. And right now we are seeing the informed consent of the patient to decide for themselves whether they will go along with a particular medical procedure or not is being transformed into something that it could be better called the coercion of the uninformed. Now you hear talk about the Nuremberg trials, you know, that followed World War II, all the German hierarchy that found themselves swinging at the end of a rope because they they would say things like, well, I was just doing my job. All I was doing was my job. I had orders. It was legal. It was all supposed to be, you know, proper and legal. Well, the protocols that came out of those Nuremberg trials included a lot of protocols regarding medicine. And informed consent is an essential part of human rights, meaning you cannot perform medical experiments on people without their permission. William Sullivan actually has an excellent article. This is in the AmericanThinker.com. And he says, there must be a lot of money to be made in peddling medical treatments and prescription drugs to Americans, or else there'd be no way the advertisements pitching these treatments and drugs to the public could be so plentiful. But you may have noticed a feature of those ads that's conspicuously absent in the public pitch for COVID-19 vaccines. Let's consider that commercial, and he has a link to the commercial here, or any of the hundreds just like it, entreating you to get vaxxed as a means to get back to life, showing happy images of travel passports, college, family meals, and visiting grandparents. But we're assured it's okay to have questions, like how were the vaccines tested and why should I get vaccinated? How were they tested? In rigorous clinical trials among adults of diverse backgrounds, we're assured, oh, well, that's a relief. Why should I get vaccinated? Because protecting yourself also helps pr- protect the people around you. You don't say. Hadn't heard that. Back to life, the commercial ends. It's up to you. Now, there's two things the average American might notice here. The first is that this, this commercial, like every COVID vaccine pitch ever created, treats us like the skeptical yet potential consumer. Like a child being persuaded by a desperate parent to believe that Santa really showed up on Christmas Eve. I saw him on the Santa Tracker app. Honest. The second is the absence of all that fine print disclosure that commonly appears at the bottom of most American drug commercials. Accompanied by a swift recitation of those horrifying potential side effects in a pleasant voice. And curiously, after not being reminded... That there are potential side effects to the COVID vaccines, or what those side effects are, we're also not reminded that we should talk to our doctor before deciding to take this new drug. As it turns out, there's a reason that all those American drug manufacturers and their pitchmen have always put those uncomfortable disclosures in their commercials. And it's not because they're really bad salespeople or because they love being the subject of countless parodies for presenting side effects that are often worse than the cure they promise. No. It's thanks, in part, to this little nuisance of a concept called informed consent. Informed consent to medical treatment, according to the American Medical Association, is fundamental to both ethics and law. Patients have a right to receive information and ask questions about recommended treatments so that they can make well-considered decisions about care. Pharmaceutical companies peddling their wares in America almost uniquely in the global context are able to market prescription drugs directly to potential patients. Now, because of this, the Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, seeks to keep the drug peddlers honest, believing this to be part of the process by which potential patients are informed, therefore requiring them to present the negative side effects of any medical treatment alongside potential benefits. Now, the other reason is personal injury lawyers who will scour every advertisement a drug company puts out to find a client that experiences some negative impact as a result of an undisclosed side effect. But that's another story. In sum, that appears to be why COVID vaccine commercials don't include side effects to inform the public about any potentially negative side effects. It's a loophole. They don't disclose the details because they're not marketing a specific brand of the product to the public. It's just a public service announcement that, coincidentally, I'm sure, does what the pitchmen of Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, or Moderna couldn't legally do as a matter of consumer protection, and that is pitch their products by promising all of that vague upside without presenting any of the potentially negative side effects. So the advertisements for the COVID vaccine are neither informative nor balanced despite being presented as such. And even more sinister than that, they seem to offer the false proposition of our being given a choice in taking the jab. It's not a very convincing pretense, to be fair. Even the language in the commercials amounts to a thinly veiled threat that non-compliance will be punished. You can't get back to life unless you get the shot, it unapologetically presumes. But it's, but it's presented as if any of this might just be a matter ...of personal choice. It's okay to have questions, we're told. It's just not okay to reach any conclusion that involves a decision not to take the jab for any reason. You're free to have reservations about it, of course, so long as those reservations eventually, and hopefully soon, the rest of society's counting on you... ...become assuaged by the soothing, vague bromides that have been provided by the product manufacturers and their pitchmen. This, like the masks and like the stupid distancing rituals we became accustomed to last year... Is just theater. When you sit for the jab, the nurse will likely give you seven pages of warnings and disclosures. Now, maybe if she's really honest, as happened to be while his brother-in-law was getting the shot, she'll tell you that this list of disclosures is about six pages longer than the typical set of disclosures that accompanies a normal vaccine. Sure, you could put on your readers and glance at all those warnings and disclosures for a few minutes, as if the information therein might affect your decision to let the nurse plunge the contents of that syringe in your arm. But that's just theater, too. There's nothing in there that's changing your mind. The nurse knows you're going to let her do it, just as you likely know. You may not have a job next month if you don't. Over the threat of COVID and in spite of this virus being miraculously undeadly to children and most healthy individuals, while only threatening a fairly specific demographic in society at any significant level, the government took away our right to go to church, our right to conduct commerce in our communities, our children's right to the education for which we overpay, and even our ability to smile at one another when we pass each other in the grocery store. Now, if you work for government, do you think even for a moment the same government that did all of that to you would not now do everything within and even beyond its newfound power to force you to take these vaccines as a condition of employment? If you work in the private sector, are you so naive to think that this coercion may not be imminently coming for you in the form of corporate leviathans doing the bidding of government with whom it's now openly shares a bed in order to force you at all costs to to unwillingly plunge into your arm the drugs that government has already bought from these drug companies? They're not interested in our consent and are deeply interested in limiting our access to information. There is no informed consent involved here. It's just tyranny. Nothing more, nothing less. So says William Sullivan. That's pretty direct. I don't know if you, if you can hear your pulse in your ears. <laughs> Maybe, maybe it hit the right nerve. <clears throat> I've got a link to this in the show notes. You can check them out at thebrianhideshow.com. Send me some feedback, if you so wish. Consider subscribing. Consider becoming a regular monthly supporter of this program.
0: This is the Brian Hyde Show.
2: Hey, really, I'm seriously glad that you are part of the growing audience of wrong thinkers. Not because this show is all that, but simply because I'm grateful to know that there are people out there who still value things that matter. Things like personal conscience, things like personal liberty, things like private property rights and free market principles and freedom of association. I don't know. They seem to have fallen out of favor. And, of course, the last year and a half hasn't done as many favors either but uh, I'm glad that you are part of those who are still looking for a solid take on what's going on, and hopefully what you're finding here is something that leaves you more sure at the end of the day about who you are and what you stand for than simply what you're against or who you're against. It's okay to discuss even tough topics, but I make a very sincere effort to do so without bringing more anger or more fear to the situation. Now, having said that, We're going to tackle some tough topics in this hour of the program. So you've been warned. But these are topics that I think need to be brought up, if if for no other reason, just to to make people aware of them. Um, And also to provide the philosophical and intellectual ammunition, if uh, you find yourself discussing this with other people, so that you can know where you stand. You can understand what's at stake. I'm pretty clear on where I stand on a lot of things, but I always love people who can, can help me better state it, more succinctly, more clearly. And that's what I spend my day doing, is trying to find the best information that I can find that I can then pass on to you. By the way, I have terrific sponsors who also make this program possible, including the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, Lifesavingfood.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. Well, let's jump right in here. Given the number of people who've been vaccinated who still become infected, you would think that would pretty much negate the need for vaccine passports, right? The idea of the vaccine passport was, okay, this person is safe. You are cleared to enter this business or this this flight or to, to jump on this train, whatever the case may be. But there's an awful lot of people who've gotten the vaccine, who are fully vaccinated, who still are coming down with COVID and spreading COVID. So you would think that would slow down this push for vaccine passports. And to me, the, the the worst part about the vaccine passport is you are essentially creating a type of medical apartheid. You're creating a different tier of society where there's a very clear delineation between those who have the passport, who are, you know, part of polite society and the unclean, the rest, you know, the uh, the rabble, if you will, the unvaccinated. It's segregation. We're just not doing it based on skin color alone, but it's segregation in the purest possible sense. And it's weird that the U.S. government still is plowing ahead full steam to implement vaccine passports. There's a great article from Helen Andrews. This is in the American Conservative. And it's a it's a doozy. She says, on August 10th, former White House Coronavirus Task Force Senior Advisor Andy Slabit tweeted something snarky, as is his habit. If people who go out and buy fake vaccine cards get COVID, do they expect someone to put them on a real ventilator? One of his Twitter followers replied, we need a way to track vaccination that isn't on a little handwritten paper card, something that's very hard to falsify. You have ideas, contacts, resources, I bet. Make it happen, Andy. His response was, hold on for three and a half weeks and you will see. Well, that was two and a half weeks ago. Right now, she says the vaccine passport system is a patchwork. With multiple official and unofficial apps, New York State and New York City each have different apps. Excelsior Pass and NYC COVID Safe. Fraud is easy in some apps. Some Others check your claim to be vaccinated against state health records. Many people avoid apps entirely and just take a photo of their vaccination card with their smartphone or carry around a hard copy. A standardized vaccine passport app would clear up these logistical snags. It would be the green light that prompts cities and private businesses currently considering vaccine mandates to start imposing them. Now, the Biden administration has said repeatedly there will not be a national vaccine mandate or a national vaccine database. Jen Psaki said back in March, the development of a vaccine passport, or whatever you want to call it, will be driven by the private sector. But even a private sector vaccine passport should be resisted by every possible means. It's the first step on a slippery slope to a social credit system, and the only time it can be stopped is at the very beginning. A vaccine passport system would mean, in practice, scanning a QR code any time you enter a place where proof of vaccination is required. Restaurants, coffee shops, universities, concert venues, office buildings. Ideally, there would also be some way of verifying that the person listed on the passport is the same person who's presenting the QR code. Right now, for example, New York City's vaccine mandate for restaurants requires patrons present both a vaccine passport and a matching ID. You know, for... for the people who support this the most strongly, I'm sure, are also a very, you know, we are against the Nazis, the fascists. And yet they are the ones supporting a system that is very literally papers, please. It's insane. The article goes on to state, there are very few places where scanning a QR code every time you enter a building is standard protocol. One of them is Xinjiang. I'm probably saying that wrong, but in China, another in Sydney, Australia, the new state of uh, the state of New South Wales earlier this year, mandated QR codes be posted at the entrance of every workplace, retail store, restaurant, church, hotel, salon, pub, hospital and movie theater, plus taxis and Ubers, as well as large outdoor gatherings such as weddings and funerals. Meaning, everyone coming in must scan the QR code or sign in manually if they don't have a smartphone. Scanning again to check out is encouraged but not required. Police and private security guards have been posted at grocery store entrances to make sure the mandate is enforced. Fines are up to $5,000 for businesses and $1,000 for patrons. Now, right now, the system's being used for contact tracing. Probably will soon shift seamlessly into a vaccine passport. Premier Gladys Baraj-Killian last week tested the idea of adding vaccine status, vaccination status, to the same official state app that manages QR code check-ins, making it an all-in-one app. That was part of her announcement that uh, vaccinated Sydney siders would soon be permitted additional freedoms, like an extra hour of outdoor exercise. This system of rewards and penalties is reminiscent of the Chinese social credit system which, according to second-hand reports, some Australian bureaucrats explicitly cite in private as a model for their country to follow. Now, what people call China's social credit system is a patchwork as well. There are official official government blacklists targeting fraud, non-payment of debts, traffic violations, and other anti-social behavior. These are mostly regional, though it's expected these local pilot programs will be knitted into a single national system eventually. Penalties include being banned from air or train travel or having your children excluded from elite schools. More intrusive and less subject to rule of law protections are the social credit systems of private companies like Alibaba and WeChat. These take into account social media behavior, purchase history, don't buy too many video games, even friendship networks. Spend too much time around people with low Sesame credit scores and and Alipay will lower your score too. Rewards and penalties are confined to each company's ecosystem, at least for now. The private systems are also expected to be integrated into a national social credit system eventually. But since apps like WeChat manage everything from users' messaging to banking, government services and healthcare, their power to manipulate incentives might be even greater than government's. And the crazy thing that you have to understand about China's social credit system is that it's popular. A 2018 poll by the Free University of Berlin found 80% of respondents had a favorable view of the social credit system, with wealthier and more educated users the most in favor. Now, there are a lot of folks who'd consider these kind of measures dystopian, but who have no problem with a bare-bones vaccine passport. What those people have to understand is this. Once Americans get used to scanning a QR code every time you go into a building... There is no way to arrest that trajectory at the specific point you prefer. prefer. That's a pretty chilling article from Helen Andrews, senior editor at American Conservative. She says, if the gold standard vaccine passport app is indeed imminent, people should start thinking a step ahead. If the eventual result of a social credit system sounds dystopian to you, then now's the time to resist. If we've learned anything from COVID, she says, it's that restrictions tend to stick around once they're imposed and that promised back to normal is always just around the corner. I can't tell you where to draw your line in the sand, but if you were going to say no, this is probably a good place to start saying no.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
2: Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout-out here to our sponsors, including lifesavingfood.com. I've been a big fan of food storage, well, ever since my first child arrived. That's the first time I really was hit with the responsibility of, hey, as a father, you are responsible for providing for your family and making sure that that little life is cared for. Well, my little one is 27 years old now, and I'm still concerned about, uh, you know, providing for my family and making sure that we have things set aside for a rainy day. Now, chances are very good if you're listening to this program, you probably have, have some similar preps. Do you have some gaps in your food storage program? Are there some places you'd like to fill in? Do you have something that's portable you could grab and go? I only ask this because my sponsor, LifesavingFood.com, has a number of different packages that could fit just about any budget or any need. So take a look at it. If you find something that works for you, fantastic. Be sure to use HYDE, H-Y-D-E, as your coupon code at checkout, and they'll knock 10% off your purchase price. That's a pretty sweet deal. All right. This is probably the heaviest thing that I'm going to be sharing with you today. So, consider yourself warned. If you need a dandelion break, maybe this is the time to take it. I've been reading Michael Snyder for quite a few years. He's a regular contributor to LouRockwell.com. Lou Lew Rockwell is uh, one of my primary resources for wrong thinkers, just because it has such a wide variety of writers and contributors who contribute on a daily basis. I've been reading Lou Rockwell for um, I'm guessing over 25 years now. Very close to it. It's, it's, been, it's been a long time. And Michael Snyder's warnings have, have been very well thought out and on target. He's been warning about our change in direction towards dictatorship for many years. In his most recent column, he makes a point that we have to uh, acknowledge, and that is, this is not something that's going to fix itself. And unfortunately, a lot of people have that attitude. Michael Snyder says, if only George Orwell could see what we've become. Today, I'm writing this article in the midst of a deep state of sadness. And he says, I have to admit, I haven't been this sad in a very long time. In fact, I don't even know if I'm going to be able to complete the article. What they are doing, the people who are seizing power to this country that I love, is really starting to get to me emotionally. He says, America is supposed to be a beacon of liberty and freedom for the entire world. But now we are on the cutting edge of the global trend toward authoritarianism. He says, I know that a lot of people have been leaving the United States in recent years in an attempt just to escape the madness. But at this point, we see authoritarianism on the rise just about everywhere. Look at New Zealand. Just look at Australia. Just look at the Philippines. At one time, people were fleeing to those countries. But now they've become some of the most authoritarian regimes of all. And he says, I feel so frustrated because I feel like I've been banging my head against a brick wall. Over the past decade, he says, I've written countless articles warning we were losing our liberties and our freedoms. And very large numbers of people all over the globe read those articles. But did they do any good? And these are just a few of the titles that that he's written about. Thoughts on the New Normal and the Things We're Losing as a Society. Or without freedom of speech, what is going to happen to America? Or less government, more freedom. Here's another one. The police state is coming for religious extremists, evangelical Christians, pro-life activists, and libertarians. And 12 signs that Americans who love liberty and freedom should watch their backs. Now Michael Snyder says, I warned this day was coming, now it's here. For a while they were content to whittle away our liberties and freedoms on the periphery, but now we are facing a full-fledged frontal assault on our most basic liberties and freedoms. And what makes it even more frightening is the fact that millions of completely brainwashed Americans are cheering them on as they do it. If our founders could see us today, they'd be absolutely horrified at what we've become. Now, listen to what he says next. Maybe you can relate. Michael Snyder says, Because I'm often so critical of what has happened to us, A lot of people out there assume you must hate this country. But, of course, that's not true at all. He says, I deeply love America. I deeply love our history. I deeply love our traditions. And I deeply love the values that this nation is supposed to represent. That is why it deeply grieves me that these things are now being ripped away from us. We are the generation that is witnessing the end of America. And he says, for whatever period of time the political entity known as the United States is allowed to continue, it won't be America anymore. Sure, the U.S. Constitution will still be on public display somewhere and politicians will still pay lip service to it. But for all practical purposes, the dream of what America was supposed to be will be dead. Now Sometimes people say we have too many complainers, not enough people taking action. But Michael Snyder says, I am one of those people that did try to take action. I spent nearly an entire year of my life running for office and my campaign manager traveled thousands upon thousands of miles so we could personally talk to as many voters as possible. Everywhere I went, I warned that unless emergency action was taken, there wasn't going to be a future for America. I begged, I pleaded, I delivered passionate speech after passionate speech, but in the end, it wasn't good enough. Why can't we have extremely passionate politicians that have fire in their bellies? Why aren't the liberty-loving members of Congress speaking up? Now, Rand Paul has chosen to make a bold stand, but where in the world is everyone else? He says, I'm so sick and tired of these do-nothing politicians. They're standing aside as our republic is literally being destroyed. A lot of people out there think that the changes we're witnessing are just temporary. They think that eventually this pandemic will fade away and everything will just return to normal somehow. What they don't realize is that the elite will always find another excuse to move even further down the road toward authoritarianism. Now, think about it. Two two decades ago, it was 9-11. Then it was the war on terror, which has now evolved into the war on domestic extremism. For the past couple of years, the pandemic has given them the cover they needed to greatly accelerate their program. He's talking about the, the power seekers, the opportunists. In 2021, the federal government is working hand-in-hand with big corporations and mainstream media to advance the Big Brother agenda. At this point, things have gotten so bad, we can't even criticize certain specific points of their agenda anymore, because if we do, we immediately get censored. For a long time, the Internet allowed ordinary citizens like you and me to communicate on a mass scale outside of their control. But those days are now over because they're clamping down really hard. Just like in George Orwell's novel, they want to control what we say, what we think, what we believe, and what we feel. Having an independent opinion is dangerous. Thinking for yourself is dangerous. We have literally become a 1984 society. Most Americans are just standing by and watching it happen. And Michael Snyder says, as I've been saying for years, if we stay on our current course, there is no future for America. Even Joe Rogan is using the word dictatorship to describe the direction that our country is headed. Many are putting their heads in the sand and are assuming that our system will correct, that, or correct itself eventually. But every single day, things are getting even worse. And so he says, if you love liberty, now is the time to stand up and say something. Time is rapidly running out, and authoritarianism is on the march. Now, what that means to each, in, each individual is going to be different. Not everybody is going to want to stand up and you know, be the nail sticking up that's you know, begging to get hammered. I agree with Michael Snyder. We've had plenty of warning. A lot of people have been slow to wake up to it, but uh, the warnings have been there. My good news to you is there is still time to act. There is still time to, to fortify yourself for whatever is coming. And by that, I don't mean build a bunker, stock it with beans, bullets, and Band-Aids. I mean... There is time to network with like-minded people. You don't need to have a majority of people. You just need to find a few people who think like you do and who are willing to stand up in your defense. I think Ammon Bundy's People's Rights Organization is an excellent example of what this looks like at the grassroots level. It really works. It helps people to organize themselves and peacefully come and stand for one another. Plus, it's a good idea to, you know, have your own house in order and especially have your spiritual affairs in order. Thanks again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
2: Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm joined by my friend Eric Peters from EPautos.com. We do a little weekly uh, get together, talk about what's going on, solve the world's problems. You know, pretty minor league <laughs> stuff. Eric, great to have you back on the show.
1: Oh, thank you, Brian. I, I would like to say to people out there, rather than put on a mask, uh, don't pick up that cheeseburger.
2: Let's talk about this. I mean, you you were teasing me when when we when we first got on the line here about put down that mm-hmm. cheeseburger. Um, you know, there there is something to be said about that comorbidity of obesity being a factor in who is, uh, you know, getting COVID and who is actually in great danger from it.
1: Yeah, well, my understanding is the single greatest uh, risk factor associated with any serious consequences from this bug. In other words, if you're significantly overweight, not, you know, everybody has well most people carrying a few extra pounds here and there. So am I. I'm talking about people who are morbidly obese. If you're in that category. Uh, the chances of your getting the sickness and becoming seriously sick are significant. Those are the people who are predominantly at risk, and when you add in being elderly, that becomes a double risk. The rest of us, not so much. But anyway, my point is there is almost nil in terms of any kind of educational campaign to let people know, hey, you know what? Being really heavy is really unhealthy, and it always has been, and now it's even more so. And this is the public health threat, not the RONA per se. It's what makes people vulnerable to sickness generally, including this sickness. If you're really heavy, you're vulnerable to getting diabetes. You're vulnerable to getting hypertension. You're vulnerable to a whole slew of chronic and acute health problems that are largely under your control, and that's the fascinating thing. This isn't just something that falls from the sky under your head. You have it, you have it under control what you eat and how you live, and if you take steps to improve your health – Lo, lo and behold, you can be healthy, and you can be at very greatly reduced risk of all of these problems and it's just it 's depressing and it 's also angering that the so called public health authorities are doing nothing to inform and educate people and encourage them to be more healthy and instead they 're encouraging these people who are not healthy. Uh, to regard their poor health as the obligation of other people. And that, that's a profoundly wrong thing, in my opinion.
2: Oh, I, I would agree. And it, this brings to mind something else, and that is, there is a lot that we can do to bolster our own immune system. We hear almost mm-hmm. nothing of natural immunity. All we hear nothing. is, you know, you've got to get the vaccine. The vaccine is the way that we're going to beat this disease. Well, natural immunity is something that has worked well. And, in fact, if, if I'm not mistaken, there are studies now that are showing that uh, people who have have had COVID and have achieved a a degree of immunity from that actually have stronger immunity than the ones who got the vaccine.
1: Absolutely, and I think that this is generally true. Now, it's anecdotal, but you and I, Gen Gen X people and older, remember when kids would go outside and play in the dirt, jump in the creek, and were, uh, in, in effect, had a much dirtier childhood than than kids have today with the helicopter parenting and the safety cult and uh, the, the the insane neurotic risk aversion. And our generation is healthier. You know, we're not plagued by all of these chronic sicknesses. We don't have the food allergies. We don't have the autism. We don't have all of the other problems that these, things, that these kids now have. And one has to ask the question, well, why is that? And it's because of these, I think, I think there's a correlation between all of these sort of preemptive palliative measures, vaccines, this, that, uh, that thwart and stymie the body's natural ability to develop strength and thus be be resistant to these things. It's kind of like if, you know, if you run, if you work out, as I do, your body is stronger and your body can withstand more than the, the body of somebody who is weaker because they haven't gone out and exercised and haven't taken care of their health. I
2: remember when I was doing martial arts regularly, one of the the sayings that kind of stuck in my head is, strong people are harder to kill. And I assume that's that's true not only for the assailant, but also for germs
1: and and viruses. Yes. They also recover more readily. You know, I think about myself, and again, this is anecdotal, this is personal, this is just me. But here we are almost two years into this thing, this supposedly highly infectious, uh, very deadly respiratory disease, and I've not caught so much as a cough. And I think that's because uh, I'm in very good very good physical condition and because I'm an avid runner, and, you know, my lungs are in really good shape because I go out and run four to five miles every other day. And I think that gives me a kind of immunity, uh, even leaving aside if I got the virus. I think that just makes me less susceptible not just to this sickness but to other sicknesses generally. I don't get these respiratory infections, and I do think that there's a correlation there. I can't prove it. But, you know, if you look around and look at the people who are getting sick versus those who aren't, there's a pretty strong correlation between being fit and and having not too much fat on your body and being healthy and then the opposite.
2: Okay, I'm having some second thoughts about that cheeseburger I had for breakfast, but
1: hey. <laughs> now, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with a cheeseburger every once in a while. The problem is when you go to McDonald's every day or, you know, several times right. a week, and, and there's nothing wrong with having a soda as a treat every once in a while. The problem is when you have... Uh, a 20-ounce soda with every meal. It's moderation and it's reasonable behavior. That's the issue here.
2: You know, you, your recent article about swim at your own risk mm-hmm. I, I think is is one of the more timely things I've seen on how far we've come from where there was a time where people were expected to be responsible. But mm-hmm. instead, we have uh, been transformed into a bunch of little children and and the state or some regulatory, now it's even big business, has become sort of a parent like this, sure. this this firm but uh, but scolding parent who's there to keep us uh, wayward children in line,
1: which is an incredibly demeaning thing if you are somebody who is responsible, and judicious, uh, who exercises sound judgment, you know this idea that because other people are irresponsible and don't exercise good judgment and who want you to be held accountable for their poor decisions is really annoying, isn't it?
2: Oh, without a doubt. And, and it's not to say that, you know, sometimes bad things happen. I remember friends falling out of trees and breaking their arms sure. and stuff. But you learned from that. And, and from that, exactly. we learned, okay, so when we pushed ourselves to go up the maple tree to this point, we found out that was not a good idea. And other friends right. didn't make the same mistake.
1: Right. This is how you develop. <laughs> you know, as a kid, you learn not to touch the hot stove, sometimes by touching the hot stove. You learn not to walk out onto the pond that's frozen over unless you're pretty <laughs> sure that it's safe, right? You know, if you if you prevent human beings as children, especially from from learning these life lessons, what do you end up with? You end up with a person who is is not only incapacitated, who has no judgment, but who is terrified of everything. They see risk around every corner. They haven't mastered the world. You know, when you grow up uh, learning to deal with the world and and, and sort of probing here, testing there seeing what you can do and what, what, what will happen if you do something that maybe isn't so smart, you develop a sense of competence and you develop a sense of your own good judgment. Like, I, you know, I, I know what I'm doing. You know, I'll, I'll be careful. I'll, I'll take prudent steps and I won't get hurt. And that turns you into an adult human being as opposed to a perpetual child in, in an adult body.
2: Now you have been a very bad influence on me in this respect, and I, I say that tongue in cheek only because my my wife strongly disagrees with something I learned from you years ago, mm-hmm. and that is when I come to a traffic signal. And let's I'm I'm talking like at four o'clock in the morning. I come to yep. a traffic signal, and for whatever reason, it's not changing. I yep. do not sit there and wait, like a good child, you know, for the traffic signal to tell me it's okay to Mm -hmm. go. If it becomes clear, man, this thing is not responding, I will look, and when I ascertain that it's safe, by gosh, I will go.
1: Of course, well, why shouldn't you? I mean, are you a primitive who's looking at a totem pole and scared that it's going to come to life and smite (laughs) you or something? I mean, the the reason for the light is, is that, It's to to manage the flow of traffic and and to provide right-of-way for vehicles that are crossing in opposing directions. And that's entirely reasonable and good and sensible when there's traffic. But if there's no traffic and the thing is just blindly and mindlessly red, and it's obvious that it doesn't detect the presence of your car and it's not going to change, you have to be kind of an idiotic automaton to just sit there and do nothing. It's stupid.
2: Well, and like I say, I credit you with pointing that out that, you know, oftentimes we get conditioned to where, well, I'm just supposed to sit here until this thing tells me to go. I have decided to reclaim my prerogative as a thinking adult, and I'm I'm not going to be reckless, but I'm also not going to sit there like some trained dog waiting for the signal.
1: Sure. You know, when kids grow up, they they have a, a natural inclination to ask why. And I think the worst thing that you can do when you're raising a kid is to say just because. I say so. Right. I think it's incumbent upon parents to explain to their kids why, to uh, to feed their rational curiosity, to give them a good explanation, because if you can't, then there is no good explanation. And then all you're doing is inculcating kind of a, a, a sense of mindless obedience to arbitrary authority. And that is, it's not only dehumanizing, it is dangerous. It is the kind of thing... That characterizes people who live in tyrannical societies, who walk around with their heads bowed and their shoulders stooped and who just do what they're told. We don't want people like that. We want people who want to know why and who expect a good answer before they do it.
2: I don't know the name of the Star Wars character, but the guy who says, I have spoken. That's, I, I've pulled that more than once on my kids, but mm-hmm. uh, I, I see the point that you're, you're making. And I don't want to be treated like a kid. Eric, we're we're coming up on our break. When we come back on the other side of the break, I want to talk to you about uh, a recent column you had about how government saves us money. That's in quotation marks. Good stuff. All right. We're talking with Eric Peters from epautos.com. If you haven't checked out his website, first of all and foremost, it is one of the best places you can find automotive knowledge. And uh, if uh, if you're a fan of freedom, which I assume you are, you wouldn't be listening to this program. You'll also find a lot of great food for thought there as well. And some great comments to learn from. He's got a very informed audience. So we'll take a quick break. We'll be back with Eric Peters right after this.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
2: Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm talking with Eric Peters from epautos.com. That's a website you ought to have bookmarked on your browser. You should visit him regularly. Eric, uh, let's talk about how government saves us money. You use some terrific automotive examples (laughs) of how uh, a little regulation here, a little regulation there, and by gosh, pretty soon we're talking real money.
1: Yeah, well, if anybody out there listening to this has done a brake job recently on a modern car, they'll probably already be familiar with what I'm going to talk about. Uh, A lot of times when you do a brake job on a car with disc brakes, uh, you'll have to uh, turn the rotors, the rotors being the discs that the pads clamp onto, and that's how the car stops now uh, when I say turn that's something that involves putting the rotor onto a special lathe that trues the surface that cuts off some of the metal to restore it to a nice flat uh, plane so that you don't get that pulsating wobbling thing uh, through the brake pedal but the problem is that a lot of modern cars in fact probably almost all modern cars have rotors that can't be turned or machined because they're made uh, of very light metal relative uh, to what the rotors of the past were made of and the reason for that is because the car companies are absolutely desperate to figure out ways to cut the weight off of a car in order to comply with all of these federal fuel efficiency mandates to save you money by reducing how much fuel your car uses. But now, when you need a brake job, instead of getting the brake pads or brake rotors machined, you have to get them replaced. And so you're going to pay for a set of new rotors rather than just the machine work to have them turned on a lathe, which is less that's one example. Another is if you've raised the hood of a modern car recently, you might notice how flimsy it is. I, I I, kind of jokingly jest and say that it's kind of like the flag waving on the moon. You can almost just kind of like waggle it by yourself right. like that. And it's supported by a little flimsy prop rod. And you literally could. This is not an exaggeration. If you're a reasonably strong man, you could bend it in half with your bare hands. I know I could. Now, contrast that with the way hoods were in the past and fenders and all the exterior panels on most cars which were made of pretty heavy gauge steel. And for that reason, they could take a significant impact with only minimal damage. And, you know, the term fender bender comes to mind. And, you know, bench your fender, no big deal. Get it hammered back out uh, and and maybe put some body putty in it, paint it, you're done, good to go. Now these minor impacts cause catastrophic damage because there's almost no structural worth or merit to the exterior panels of a car now. So if you get into, say, a 15-mile-an-hour bump in traffic, the whole front end of the car folds up. And now you're looking at $5,000 worth of repairs. And, of course, you're going to pay for that in terms of the insurance that you're paying for your car because the insurance companies aren't dumb, and they know what they're going to be on the hook for uh, if something happens to your car, and that's reflected in your premium. Most people are wondering, why is my car insurance so high, notwithstanding that I don't have any tickets and I've never filed a claim. The reason they're high is because the actuaries have looked at the data, and they know that if you do get into an accident or somebody hits you, there's going to be a big expense involved. And again, all of this is done uh, in terms of trying to shave weight off the car to meet these federal gas mileage standards, which the government talks about as saving you money. Well, you're going to pay for it in the form of higher repair costs and higher insurance bills.
2: No, it's this is, this is one of the most informative articles I've read in a while. The, and and it, I'm not even a guy who wrenches on his own cars, and it infuriates me. Because mm-hmm. this is being done, you know, ostensibly we're going to save the planet, right? We're going to have better That's gas right. mileage and so forth. But I long for the days when real cars <laughs> once roamed the highways. I, I wish we could go back to it.
1: I know, well, me too. And, you know, I'll tell you, I have a, a, an interesting personal anecdote involving uh, two trucks that I've owned, one that I still owned. I currently own a 2002 Nissan Frontier, and previously I owned a 98 Nissan Frontier, and they're basically the same truck. The only difference is that the 98 still had an exposed metal bumper, and it had glass headlights. Well, by the time my 2002 was built, Nissan had gotten rid of the exposed chrome metal bumper and instead put one of those plastic front ends that almost all new cars have now on the thing, uh, along with plastic headlights. Well, I hit a deer in the 98, and the only damage done to the thing was that the bumper was pushed in a little bit, and one of the headlights was cracked. So I used to come along to pull the bumper back out, tied it to a tree, put the truck in reverse, pulled it out, <laughs> went down to AutoZone, and got a new headlight for $25. Fast forward a little bit, uh, and, I, and in 2002, I, I struck a deer in essentially the same way at the same speed. It took off the whole front clip, and I had to have an entire new front end, that plastic front thing, put on the car, and also a new plastic headlight assembly. And the total damage was about 2200 bucks.
2: Yow. Yep. Well, you know, some of these improvements uh, could be called improvements. Some of them, I think there's a big question mark over them. Uh, you also recently wrote about uh, who killed the electric car mm-hmm. that worked. And, and you and I have talked about electric yeah. vehicles before, but what's the story behind this? I, I'm not I'm not yep. familiar with the Michael Moore movie about uh, the electric car.
1: Yeah. Uh, the, the movie that, that Moore did was called Who Killed the Electric Car? And it was about one of the very early... Electric cars that was called the EV1 or the Impact, depending on you know which which one you go by, and GM made that back in the 90s. And I test drove those things when they were new. And Moore's thesis was that uh, you know GM just didn't want to sell the things, and they they pulled them off the market, and they did everything they could to make it a failure. Um, when in fact it failed because of the same reasons that plague electric cars today: they're too expensive, they cost too much money, and they cost too much time. This whole thing of having to Plan your life around a recharge, even if it's a so-called fast charge. You have to think about when you're going to plug it in in order to be able to to plan when and where you're going to go. And it's, it's a huge hassle, and most people just don't want to increase the hassle of their lives. They want to be able to just get in their car in the spur of the moment and be able to go wherever they want to go without all of this elaborate planning. Anyway, fast forward a couple of decades, and GM came out with a vehicle called the Volt and not many people are aware of the Volt. The Volt is what's called a series hybrid, and it works kind of like uh, a diesel-electric mo- uh, locomotive, where there's a diesel engine that, carries, uh, that produces the electricity that powers the traction motors. Only in this case, it was a small gas engine. Now, the brilliance of this design was the gas engine didn't actually propel the car. All it did was occasionally come on to charge up the batteries as needed. The thing could operate as a pure electric car, for up to about 50 miles, which is enough for most people's daily drive. And if not, if that exceeded your daily drive, well, the gas engine would just automatically kick on and start to feed juice into the batteries, which never discharged completely, which is another big problem with the pure electric car because of the risk of the fire that comes with trying to fast charge the thing. And also, as anybody who knows anything about batteries knows, it's hard on a battery to discharge it to almost nothing and then recharge it and then repeat and do this over and over that never happened with the Volt. So you had this car that combined the, the, the best of both worlds. It was a car that could operate purely on electricity, and yet it was a car that you could jump in and drive anywhere, anytime, and not be hobbled by having to be tied to an electrical umbilical cord. And if anybody cares about the climate change thing and environmental impact, this was the solution. It worked. Not only did it work on a functional level, but it worked on an affordable level. If you want to get people driving cars that are good for the earth, this is the sort of car that could be that should be touted and promoted because it's something people could actually buy. Unlike fifty thousand dollar Teslas with ludicrous speed that are only for elite affluent virtue signalers.
2: Interesting. I was thinking about uh, electric cars as I was looking at some of the footage. Um over the weekend of people trying to flee uh, coastal Louisiana to get away from Hurricane Ida. And I thought, yeah, how would it be to be in an electric car and stuck in that bumper-to-bumper traffic trying to get inland
1: so that they're not in danger? Of course, and there's almost no media coverage of that, which I think is telling. Now imagine that. Imagine you and your family are in the path of a Cat 4, Cat 5 hurricane, and you and several other million people are trying to get out of Dodge quickly. And, you know, you have to travel a couple hundred miles maybe to get out of there, and there's not going to be any place to plug in on the way. Now, this is something that's going to end up costing people their lives. It's not just a matter of inconvenience. And, again, it just astonishes me that the General Press will not cover this stuff.
2: Eric, we're down to about uh, the last minute of the show. Let's, mm-hmm. let's take a minute here and brag on your website. I've, I've talked briefly about it, but for people who aren't familiar with Eric Peters' autos, what can they expect to find?
1: Well, I call it the Web's Best Libertarian Gearhead site because it's a place that uh, fuses uh, interest in cars with interest in philosophy and politics. Uh, We talk about new cars. We talk about classic cars. We talk about motorcycles. We talk about health issues. We talk about food. We talk about practically everything under the sun and hopefully do so in an intelligent and thoughtful manner without any suppression and censoring of people's views.
2: And I'll tell you, I'm keeping pretty close tabs on you and your chicken coop because I'm watching (laughs) your efforts towards self-reliance, and that's a key part of it.
1: It is, absolutely, and I'm hoping to get that thing uh, up and done uh, by the weekend. I'm trying to get all the supplies uh, I'm going to need for it from Home Depot before they require me to show that I've rolled up my sleeve as a condition of being able to buy any lumber. I'm
2: sure you and I have some interesting conversations ahead as uh, vaccine passports uh, appear to be looming on the horizon.
1: We will. And hopefully there'll be good conversations. I see a lot of pushback and that has got me very encouraged.
2: All right. Well, I look forward to our next conversation. Eric, thank you so much. Have a great day.
1: Likewise. You too, Brian.